the DNA of the settler organizations has been spliced into the DNA of official Israel and basically inform and almost dictate what policy is. Hello, and thanks for tuning in. I'm Evan Gottesman, and you're listening to Axis Mundi, the podcast of Terrestrial Jerusalem. Terrestrial Jerusalem is an Israeli organization committed to tracking developments in Jerusalem that could impact a future two-state outcome to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Look out for a new episode each month as we go beyond the headlines to break down the latest news out of Jerusalem. Joining me is the organization's founder, Danny Seidemann, an attorney based in Jerusalem. Danny, to summarize our last episode in broad strokes, we were talking about what 2022 would look like for Jerusalem, and you predicted that this year was going to keep you busy like the last. Would you say that that's turning out to be true so far? Oh, there's no doubt about it. Um, And it's not my personal interpretation of events alone, but uh, the few colleagues who uh, monitor this as closely as I do say that they cannot recall a period in which so much is happening simultaneously. So hold on to your seats. There is certainly a lot going on in tandem. So to make it a little bit easier to follow, we're going to zero in on one issue in particular that has come up time and again, and that is Sheikh Jarrah. Now, over the past year, we've talked about the possibility of evictions, prospective evictions, pending evictions, and so on. Well, it's not so theoretical anymore. This month, Sheikh Jarrah saw its first eviction since 2017 with the eviction of the Salahia family. Today, we're going to see how that fits into the pattern of Israeli and Jerusalem municipal policy in the area, and why this family in particular ended up being the first in nearly half a decade to actually get evicted. So, Danny, on the Salahia family, I want to establish one thing from the get-go. In previous episodes when we've discussed Sheikh Jarrah, as well as areas of Silwan and other parts of Jerusalem, we're often talking about Palestinian residents threatened by eviction because of right-wing organizations trying to claim properties to establish Jewish settlements there. But in this case... The eviction came up because the government wanted to expropriate the land in order to build a school there, which the authorities say would service local Palestinian children. How does that differentiate the Salahia family's case from the others, and are there any similarities between this case and the ones involving settlement groups? I think you have pointed out uh, what makes this case so unique. Uh, Until now, what we have been speaking about are basically two neighborhoods within Sheikh Jarrah. One is the Shimon Tzadik area adjacent to the uh, burial grotto of Shimon Tzadik, Simon the Righteous. And there is a Supreme Court case pending with the four families. That is the area with the greatest notoriety. And then across the street from that is Um Harun, which was prior to 1948, a very small neighborhood of Jews from Georgia, from the Caucasus. And there too, there are plans by the government to raise the neighborhood and to build a settlement in its stead. Uh, The Salihah family is unique and they were targeted purportedly uh, because 
the municipality, this in this case, it was not the central government, but the municipality slated this property for demolition in order to build a school. Um, expropriations for public purposes are always controversial throughout the world, and they're always painful. And the question is, uh, is this part of a pattern dealing with the settler agenda in Sheikh Jarrah, or is this uh, benign, well-intended, etc.? I think that the indications are that in this specific case, there are at least in part sinister intent. First of all, there is no dispute that there is a shortfall of more than 2,000 classrooms in East Jerusalem because Israel has not built schools and protesting there are no available lands to build schools. I can think of no greater gift that Israel could give Hamas than an uneducated Palestinian population, and that is precisely what we've been doing. So one should encourage the construction of schools. But there are a number of things that are suspicious here. Well, first of all, the level of trust between uh, the Palestinian population in East Jerusalem and the municipality and Israeli authorities in general is, um, is so frayed that even if the intents were innocent, I think you would have a problem convincing Palestinians were that the case. Uh, however, I think that there are reasons for suspicion here. Number one, just a couple of hundred yards away from the house is a an empty lot that is controlled, owned by the government of Israel in Sheikh Jarrah, nearby, appropriate for an educational institution. And indeed, the Israel Land Authority and the municipality have decided to build an educational institution there. You're referring to the to the Or Sameach Yeshiva. Yes, it, it's the Or Sameach Yeshiva because, as I'm sure you know, the Palestinian residents of Sheikh Jarrah have been clamoring for more Torah study. They don't need elementary, uh, uh, junior, or high schools. They need another yeshiva, which is, of course, ridiculous. Uh, so there was an alternative that would not have um, necessitated the demolition of the home. Secondly, uh, we know what the plans for the construction of the school look like. And uh, the plot of land is large. There was absolutely no reason to demolish the house in order to build the school on the site designated by the municipality. So that too raises suspicions. If you can build the school without demolishing a home, why not? Next, um, uh, there's a scholar whose name escapes me at the moment who recently completed a study of expropriations in Jerusalem, I believe since 1980. And she could not think of uh, or, or identify one example, any example, of an expropriation in East or West Jerusalem in which it was necessary to demolish a home to build a school. Schools were built extensively. Schools were built for the 225,000 residents of East Jerusalem since 1967 without demolishing homes. And um, there are two final points which make this suspicious as well. What we have discussed in the past is 
uh, we are talking about connecting the dots in a way that will encircle the old city with settlements and settlement-related activities. The northern encirclement begins at the Green Line uh, and extends clockwise through Sheikh Jarrah up to Mount Scopus. And the southern encirclement starts at Dungate and the southern ramparts of the old city through Silwan, Ras Alamud, and Mount of Olives. And there are dots that are being connected here. Um Harun and Shimon Sadiq are part of those dots. Well, the site of the purported school is equidistant between two major components in that encirclement. One is immediately to the west, which is Shimona Tzadik, and the other is immediately to the north, which is the Shepherd's Hotel settlement. So the location makes this a bit suspect. Then, just a year ago, on the northern border of this site, there is a new municipal park which links um, uh, Sheikh Jarrah to the national parks controlled by the settlers around the West Bank. There's, there is too much coincidence here. There were too many alternatives. Uh, if I had a suspicious mind, which of course I don't, I have no suspicious mind whatsoever, I would think this does not smell right. But let me ask you, say the school gets built, right, in a relatively small area, you have a lot of things that are going to be in close proximity to a settlement just by the nature of how settlements have developed around Jerusalem. If the school gets built, uh, purportedly it's for the Palestinian residents. So how would the school once constructed fit into that strategy? Or is this a question of the authorities demolishing the Salaya family home and then conveniently scrapping the plans for the school? Time will tell. Uh, I do not think that the municipality anticipated that this demolition would achieve the notoriety that it has. And there was a great deal of notoriety. There was quite an uproar, not only in international public opinion, but here in Jerusalem and um, in the international community. So they know that the eyes of the world are on them. On the other hand, I can give you two examples. One example on the Mount of Olives, where the um, American settler philanthropist Moskowitz picked up a property which was supposed to be built uh, as a school by the municipality for the Palestinian children of Aswana and Atur. He bought it knowing it was expropriated, although the expropriation had not been carried out, and then used his political clout to have the area rezoned for the Beit Orot Yeshiva. Sound familiar? Uh, that's one example. The other example is the municipality finally um, uh, located a site that they could build a school for the Palestinian children of Beit Hanina, and um, because it was separated by a four or six lane highway uh, between the school and Pizgatzev, the residents of Pizgatzev were able to use their political clout and have the school scuttled and the lot remains empty. So I would not be surprised if we see over time that this site will be used for something 
other than a school and will in all likelihood serve the settler enterprise, just like everything else that is done by the municipality and the Israeli government in this specific area does. They set the agenda. I want to ask a little bit about the Salahia family's history in the area. We've established that this isn't the same story as the cases that grabbed world attention back in the late spring of 2021, those involving the settler-aligned company Nachlat Shimon International in Shimon Hatzatik. In fact, the Salahia family has been threatened with eviction before. Uh, in the past, it was actually by a Palestinian company, though, the company uh, that owns the Ambassador Hotel on Nablus Road in Jerusalem. How, if at all, do those previous claims factor into the current situation? Indeed, this case is sui generis in that there is no prior claim to Jewish ownership. It is clear that today, both in Silwan Batan al-Hawa, Um Harun and Shimon al-Siddiq and Sheikh Jarrah, the law which allows Jews to recover property that had belonged to Jews prior to 1948 to recover those lands uh, while denying the same right to Palestinians who lost land, that is the major mechanism by which settlements are getting a foothold and expanding. This is clearly not one of those cases. The land is in dispute between the corporation that owns the Ambassador Hotel and the Palestinian residents who've been living there for, I think, 20 odd years. And to be honest with you, doesn't matter one bit. Uh, That is not the issue in question. Regardless of which Palestinian owns the property, and that is something that I would not dare do without having evidence and without sitting as a judge who is able to hear witnesses and see evidence. I wouldn't dare do you know, a conjecture on that, but it doesn't matter. What does matter is, is as we have witnessed, the government of Israel harnessing all of its authority to take property away from Palestinians, be they refugees from 1948, or live in disputed homes with a corporation, doesn't matter. Are we harnessing the authorities of government in order to transform Sheikh Jarrah into an extension of pre-67 Israel? And regardless of the question of ownership, there is a strong suspicion that that may indeed be the case. Well, you just said the government of Israel, but we've been talking about something that the municipal government in Jerusalem has been doing. So where is the Israeli government in this story? You know, in in the past, it was absentee property that was the fulcrum of acquiring uh, properties for the settlers. I think at the very most complementary interpretation, the government here is absentee, but it goes beyond that. Targeted areas in East Jerusalem, specifically Silwan, City of David, Batel al-Hawa, and Sheikh Jarrah, the DNA of the settler organizations has been spliced into the DNA of official Israel and basically inform and almost dictate what policy is. And when I say official Israel, I mean both the Jerusalem municipality and the key departments in the government of Israel, whether it's the land authority, the absentee property custodian, the custodian general, etc. When I started working on this 
in October of 1991, the wisest observer that I knew then, and I have not met anyone wiser since, of Jerusalem, Meron Ben Benisti, cautioned me, Israel is a flawed and feisty democracy, but when you enter Silwan, you're entering a regime. And I believe that that is the case now in Sheikh Jarrah, that all of the governmental and municipal authorities have been harnessed to exclusively benefit the settlers. And there is a seamless interface between the government of Israel and the municipality. I'm not denying that that is necessarily the case, but even looking last year, uh, and it didn't do any good necessarily in getting to a definitive resolution, but the Israeli government showed something of an interest in trying to rein in the Nachalat Shimon, Shimon HaTzadik situation, saying that they would try to avoid an eviction actually taking place and so on and so forth. So do you not see that happening here for similar reasons? The answer is, I don't know. I do know that the government of Israel heard in no uncertain terms from Israel's closest allies, be it in North America or in Europe, don't do this. I know that they had the power and authority to stop this, and I know that they didn't do that. Now, that does not augur well, but again, it's not the final word. I recently took a senior ambassador out and around to look at things in Jerusalem, as I do on occasion. And I said to him, Sheikh Jarrah is going to destroy your tour of duty here as ambassador, because Sheikh Jarrah is not an incident. Sheikh Jarrah is a saga that will unfold. The next demolition is already slated between March 1 and April 1, the Salman family. The Salman family, pay attention to the name, you'll be hearing about it. We are awaiting a court verdict of the four families in Shimona Tzadik by the Supreme Court. We may be waiting a court verdict, perhaps another hearing about large-scale eviction in Batar al-Hawa and Salwan. And there are on the order of 30 eviction proceedings pending before the courts in Silwan and in Sheikh Jarrah. This will be a death by a thousand cuts. I am confident that at some point the evictions will stop because the actions in this regard, evictions such as these, are so egregious that Israel will lose the support of our closest allies and we will have to put a stop to it. I would like this to happen after the recent demolition and before additional unnecessary demolitions take place. I am not optimistic about that happening, but my goal is to shorten the period of time before Israel does the inevitable, and that is freezing the displacement of Palestinians in East Jerusalem for the benefit of the settlers. What do you mean by that, freezing the evictions for the settlers' benefit? I'm not looking for declarations 
or um, establishing a principle, people should not live in fear of being thrown out of their homes because of property claims by ideological settlers who have absolutely nothing to do with the property. Make it go away. Like a hit team, make the body disappear. You know, I'll give you an analogy. On July 4th, I, I remember because it was the 4th of July, 2005, the Jerusalem municipality approved a plan to build a settlement in the northeast corner of the old city of Jerusalem, Burj Laklak, that deeply concerned friends of Israel, including the Bush administration. The plan left the municipality shortly after July 4th in order to make the large journey of about 200 meters across the street to Binyan Generali, the Ministry of Interior, where it would continue to be expedited. The plan left the municipality in the first week of July 2005 and has never been seen since. It disappeared. What was done to the plan to build a settlement in the northeast corner of the old city can be done to the evictions in Silwan and Sheikh Jarrah. It is a question of political will. Let's go back now to the Salahia family story. I have two more questions. First, there's one angle to the story that I haven't seen present in any of these other situations, which is that the family patriarch, Mohammed Salahia, his wife is a Jewish Israeli. Has that factored in in any way? No. <laughs> uh, it's of anecdotal value. Uh, it's, it's, an, it's an indication that life in Jerusalem is often more complex than the caricatured version. I'll give you just another example. It is often said that uh, uh, there was ethnic cleansing of Jews from East Jerusalem by Jordan in 1948. Well, there were about 2,000 Jews uh, living in Jerusalem, most of them in the old city, the Jewish quarter, who were displaced by the war. There were between 20 and 30,000 Palestinians who were displaced by the war. There were several hundred Palestinians who remained in Israel in Jerusalem after the war, mostly in Beit Safafa. But there were a couple of families living in Rehavia and Baca as well. But there were a few Jewish women who had married Palestinian men who lived without any problem in Jordanian East Jerusalem, the old city, between 1949 and 1967. Nobody talks about it. I find it interesting as a curiosity, but this has no significance except that Jerusalem is more complicated than any of the ideologies that purport to explain her. It was worth asking, and it is certainly interesting. Now, to the crux of this case, though, we've established the background of the situation. It all comes to a crescendo in January. Mohammed Salahia ends up in a showdown with the Israeli police standing on his roof with a gas tank that he's threatening to blow up. Activists show up to protest. People get arrested. How did this drama all end up playing out? In part, we dodged a bullet because... This was an individual house and not part of the two larger communities. And in part because this isn't, you know, um, linear cause and effect. If, as anticipated, 
we will be witnessing the potential eviction of a Palestinian family in Sheikh Jarrah Salman sometime between March 1 and April 1. And in mid-April, we will find ourselves um, confronting something that only Jerusalem in her infinite wisdom can concoct, simultaneously having Pesach, Passover, Ramadan, and Easter, both Orthodox and Latin, at the same time in the old city, that makes for a perfect storm. And yes, we can dodge a bullet. And we may dodge the next bullet and the bullet after that. But if there will be continued displacement of Palestinians in Jerusalem in significant numbers, whether that be by eviction in the service of settlers or demolitions with or without the service of settlers, something's going to give. Something, this will explode. We will not proceed on this trajectory over a significant period of time without Jerusalem erupting into violence. You hear people make prescriptions like that. I think it's easy to write off, and people have short memories, but we shouldn't forget what happened last year and how quickly things spiraled not so long ago. So certainly not an eventuality that I think you or I want to see happen, but it's something that demands a lot of attention. Danny, thank you for taking the time to share your expertise with us on this issue. Thank you. The pleasure was mine, as always. And we will be keeping an eye out on all of these issues in our upcoming episodes, certainly for the triple feature coming up in the spring, Pesach, Ramadan, Easter. I didn't realize that. Um, And to all of our listeners, if you want to learn more about these issues, I encourage you to check out Terrestrial Jerusalem's website. That's t-j.org.il, where you can find previous episodes of this podcast, as well as explainers and articles that delve into some of these topics in a little bit of greater detail. Thanks for tuning in. And we hope to catch you on our next episode.